If you're new with us, we've been, uh, we'll be going through the book of Exodus. Just started a new sermon series through the book of Exodus. Uh, and at this point in the book, things have been going terribly <laughs> for Israel. I mean, terribly. Uh, so for 400 long years, uh, Israel, uh, they've been slaves in Egypt. Uh, but we saw last week that Moses has given them a glimmer of hope. Okay, so they've had 400 long years difficult years of slavery, Moses has entered the scene and given them a glimmer of hope. You see, chapter 4 ends with the promise of deliverance and Israel worshiping Yahweh. That's how chapter 4 ends. But now we flip over to chapter 5, and just as Israel has gotten a glimmer of hope, things are about to go from bad to worse. (laughs) From bad to worse. So let's turn to chapter 5 now. Exodus chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 1 through 9. Exodus 5, 1 through 9. If you don't have your Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron... Why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. This is God's word. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, Moses and Aaron have come to Pharaoh And they've asked him to let Israel go into the wilderness for three days to worship Yahweh. And Pharaoh is not a big fan of this request. Not only does he say no, but he's infuriated by their question, by their request. And so he says, I don't know the God of the Hebrews, and I really don't care. I don't care. And just because you asked this of me, I'm going to make your people get their own straw to make my bricks. Now, the Israelites' labor was already very difficult, (laughs) okay? It's extremely difficult already making these heavy bricks for the Pharaoh. But now, the Pharaoh is robbing them of the key ingredient to make the bricks, And so now Israel has to go scatter all over Egypt, desperately looking for straw or twigs or grass or like anything 
that will help them in making the bricks. All while having the exact same quota as before. And of course, this is an impossible task. It's impossible. What Pharaoh is now requiring is impossible. Uh, and the Israelite foremen are being beaten when they don't make the quota. And so the Israelites are now trapped and terrified. And how do they respond? How do they respond to this new order from Pharaoh? Well, they begin to doubt Moses. Let's look at verse 21 together. They begin to doubt Moses. Verse 21. And they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So they're doubting Moses. How does Moses respond to this situation? With the difficulty that Pharaoh has placed on his people and with the doubts arising from the people toward him, how does Moses respond? Well, he begins to doubt God. He begins to doubt God. Look at verses 22 and 23. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Now, I think it's kind of wild the way that Moses is talking back to God here. <laughs> I mean, this is pretty wild. I just imagine myself as a child talking to my father this way. Like, it would have gone pretty badly for me <laughs> to talk back to my dad in this manner. Um, I mean, Moses is more or less accusing God of sin. That's what he's doing. He's accusing God of sin. But hey, I got to be real. <laughs> I got to be real. I've talked to God this way before. Quite a bit, actually. You know, when things aren't going my way, a little bit of pain enters my life. God is the first one I shake my fist at. <laughs> so I've been guilty, just as guilty as Moses, of talking back to God. But you know, the funny thing in this particular story is that God is just doing exactly what he told Moses he would do. Right? Like he's literally just doing exactly what he said he would do. We saw that last week. If you were here, just the chapter before, God said, he told Moses that Pharaoh was not going to let the people go. He already told Moses that. And yet Moses is still freaking out and questioning God. And so what's Moses' problem? <laughs> like God already told him that this would happen, and yet Moses is panicking. Why? Why the panic? Why questioning God? God's just doing what he told you he would do. Well, here's the problem. The problem Moses is having is that the pain he is experiencing and the pain his people are experiencing are very, very real. The pain is very real. Pharaoh's whips are more tangible than Yahweh's promises. They're more tangible. And I like how the ESV translation, I like how they translate verse 4. In verse 4 of the ESV, in the ESV, the, the Pharaoh says, 
Get back to your burdens. <laughs> Get back to your burdens. <laughs> we wake up and hear that every day, don't we? It's time to get back to your burdens. <laughs> the burdens of anxiety, the burdens of sin, the burdens of religion, the burdens of the day. It's time to get back. Quit your whining, quit your crying, get back to your burdens. And we feel those whips, we feel them. The pain is tangible. But God's promises are intangible. We can't feel them. We can't touch them. We can't see them. This causes a crisis of faith in Moses. You see, the Pharaoh's whips are far more real to Moses than God's promises. It causes a crisis of faith in Moses. And it causes a crisis of faith in us too. The pain is real. And the promises don't seem very real. I mean, let's, let's be honest here. This very story, like the book of Exodus in general, causes a crisis of faith. I, just a few months ago, we had a, a couple of skeptics visit us, um, a couple of agnostic folks. And what's funny, we weren't even in the book of Exodus yet, and they, they kind of cornered me after the service. And, you know, they've got multiple objections to Christianity, and, uh, but the first thing they mentioned was the book of Exodus. They didn't like the God of the book of Exodus. So they started firing off all these questions about the God of Exodus. And hey, I get it. I mean, why is God doing all of this? Is God a tyrant? Is he a tyrant? I mean, why allow the Israelites to be enslaved in the first place, right? Like, why 400 years of slavery here, Yahweh? And now, Yahweh's making their suffering worse. Right after promising deliverance. <laughs> promised deliverance, and now their already grinding suffering has become worse. Having to make bricks without straw. Why in the world is Yahweh doing this? Well, one commentator on this passage has an interesting answer. He says this, he says, quote, left to themselves without oppression, the Israelites likely would have been content to integrate into Egyptian society, end quote. In other words, without the oppression, there would be no such thing as the nation of Israel. They would have assimilated into the Egyptian culture. And the Israelite culture would have disappeared forever off the face of the earth. And so, as you look at the book of Exodus as a whole, you could say that the first half of the book is about God getting his people out of Egypt. And the second half of the book is about getting Egypt out of his people. They were very attracted to the pagan gods in the pagan society of Egypt. And so God, in the second half of the book, has to work to get Egypt out of Israel. 
which you could argue is actually more difficult. <laughs> it's more difficult than the first half. And so, it's possible that God allows Israel to be oppressed so that they will keep their identity. They will hold on to their Jewish identity. So they will remain separate from the pagan cultures around them. And so that they will worship Yahweh alone. And one possible reason why God allows their suffering to last a little longer and go a little deeper than they or Moses wanted, well, this comes from Dr. Tim Chester. In his commentary on Exodus, he says this. He says, quote, The delay in deliverance reveals the people's hearts. End quote. It reveals their hearts. So now, remember, I said back at the end of chapter 4, everything was great. Hope has flooded in. Moses, the great deliverer, has come. God promised Israel freedom, and the people bowed down and worshipped. It seemed like their allegiances were totally with Yahweh at the end of chapter 4. They're with Him. But now, even harsher labor has set in. And their hearts are laid bare. They're laid bare. The harsh circumstances of life served as a spotlight to reveal where Israel's allegiances really lie. Where they really lie. And our harsh circumstances in life do the same thing for us. Suffering reveals what was once hidden. Suffering shines a spotlight into our hearts. You know, when I, was, when I was a kid, my dad, he made this doghouse for our family dog. And the dog was totally good with the doghouse for a long time. Loved it. You know, she would go in and out of that thing all day, every day, and no problems. Until one day she stopped going in there altogether. She just avoided the doghouse altogether. It was, even if it was like coming a flood out there, a storm, she would hang out outside the doghouse. She would not go in. So I couldn't figure out what in the world... What in the world's going on here? She wouldn't go in the doghouse anymore. So, you know, my dad goes out there. He checks the whole thing out. Thing looks fine. Like, so it's just bizarre. She just won't go in the doghouse anymore. So my dad's will go, something, something has to be going on here. Something weird is going on. So what he did was he, he pried up the floorboard of the doghouse to see what was underneath. And when he pried up the floorboard, he found the problem. Apparently, uh, a family of mice decided to share the doghouse uh, with our family pet. And apparently our dog did not like sharing the doghouse with the mice. She's like, you guys can have it. <laughs> and hey, I'm with her. I don't, I don't like them either. I'm out of there, dude. Mice entered the equation. I'm out. Okay. And so our dog was like, no, thank you. So she didn't like sharing the doghouse with the mice. And so when my dad pried up the floorboard, you know, we found out what the real issue was. And that's what suffering does in our lives. It pries up the floorboards of our hearts to reveal what's underneath, who we're really worshiping. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're dealing with some harsh circumstances. 
Maybe the burdens of life or the burdens of sin or the burdens of religion have pried up the boards of your heart. And maybe there's some scary stuff underneath. Maybe there's some mice running around under there. Maybe there are some doubts. Maybe there's some skepticism. Maybe there are some idols underneath. And so if that's true, if that's you, what do you do? What do you do when you pry up the floorboards and you see a bunch of mice running around in there? Well, here's what we do when we pry up the floorboards and we see mice running around. We have to see how the Lord responds. We have to see how the Lord responds to us in our doubting and in our idolatry. How does He respond? This tyrant God. Well, let's see. Let's turn to chapter 6. And we'll read verses 1 through 8. And as we read these next verses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to count the number of I statements that God makes. The number of I promises that God makes. Here's how our tyrant God responds to Moses' doubting and Israel's doubting. Here's what he says. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, And to Jacob, I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So how does God respond? Notice that God does not get in a back and forth argument with Moses. He does not feel the need to explain himself. He doesn't tell Israel To dry it up and suck it up. Quit your crying. Quit your whining. Quit your complaining. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Be strong. That's not what he says. What does he say? He says, I am your God. And I will be the one to pull you out. God simply reestablishes his promises to Israel. 
and he reminds Israel of who he is. He simply reminds Israel of his promises and his character. That's it. The promises and the character of God are all that Israel needs, and they are all that you and I need. The promises and the character of God. One commentator says this about this passage. He says that this text almost reads like marriage vows. Like marriage vows. He says that this is intimate, loving language here from Yahweh to Israel. Our tyrant God responds with marriage vows to his doubting, skeptical, sinful people. I mean, look at what he says. Y'all read it. Look what he says. He says, I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. I will be your husband. And you will be my bride. I'm going to take care of you. (laughs) I'm going to get you out of here. I'm going to break your yokes. I'm going to relieve you of your burdens. God is telling Moses, you don't quite know me yet. (laughs) You don't quite know who I am yet, but you will. You will. I'm going to show you who I am. And if you were counting the I statements, as we read in chapter 6, there are 14. 14 different promises from Yahweh here. And this isn't the last. And this isn't the first. (laughs) If you've been with us the last few weeks, you've seen God make multiple promises to Moses and Israel. This isn't the last time he'll do it. He will do this throughout the book of Exodus. Reestablish his promises. Now, is God repetitive? Yeah. He's repetitive here in this text. And he's repetitive about his promises all through the book of Exodus. Why? Because he has to be. He has to be. Because you know what else is repetitive in our lives? Doubts, sins, anxiety, burdens, insecurity, etc., etc., And, you know, this is why consistent church attendance is so important. That's why it's so important. You know, church attendance, this is not some religious box that you check and earn righteousness from it. (laughs) You're not earning any righteousness with church attendance, okay? That's not what church is. It's not a religious box to check. Church is a chance for you to gather with other sojourners in the faith and hear directly from the Lord. I am your God. I have redeemed you. I have rescued you. I love you. I am your bridegroom and you are my bride. I have broken your yoke of slavery. I have set you free. That's what church is for. (laughs) That's why we come here every week. We need to hear that over and over and over again. 
we must be continually reminded of who God is and what His promises are to us. They must be on repeat because everything hell throws at us is also on repeat. The same accusations, the same insecurities, the same burdens come up over and over and over again. And we wake up every morning with what phrase? Get back to your burdens. Get back. One time after the service, a lady came up to Dr. Martin Luther. She said, Dr. Luther, why do you preach the gospel every single week? And he said, because you forget it every single week. And so do I. That's the shape that we're in. We're forgetful. We forget the wonders of our God and his wondrous promises. And do you know Moses is in the same boat? He's in the same boat. We, we see this all through Exodus, okay? God gives Moses a promise and then Moses doubts it. God re-ups the promise and then Moses doubts it. <laughs> all right, that's just what happens all throughout the book. Okay? He's in the same boat as we are. He's not some special dude who's above all of that. No, he's in the exact same boat. He's forgetful too. He's prone to wander too. Okay, <laughs> He's in the same boat. And God is continually re-upping the promises to Moses. And what is he doing here? Just continually being so patient and kind with Moses who is running his mouth to Yahweh. I mean, he is running his track. Talking back, talking back, talking back, and God is so patient, God is so loving, and He's so kind, and He just keeps re-upping the promises, re-upping the promises. What is God doing here with Moses? Well, here's what He's doing. Yahweh is simply continuing the long process of turning Moses into a good shepherd. That's what He's doing here. He's turning Moses into a good shepherd of the people of Israel. What do I mean? Well, you see, before the burning bush experience, Moses had been tending sheep in the desert for 40 years. Now, that seems like a giant waste of time, doesn't it? 40 years? Man, he could have been doing so much. He could have been, you know, getting some really awesome training at this time. You know, why did God let him spend 40 years doing nothing out there? I mean, it just seems like a huge waste. This used to bother me too. Like, why waste 40 years of Moses' life? I mean, being a shepherd is a really lowly position. I don't know if you know that or not. But in the ancient world, this was basically the bottom rung of jobs, okay? This is a very lowly position. It was very much looked down upon by the rest of society. Little kids didn't grow up dreaming of being a shepherd, Okay? was very much looked down upon. I mean, you're following around these smelly and stubborn animals all day. It's dirty. It's thankless. You're dealing with animals who will not listen to you, who are prone to wander away from you, and they get themselves into danger all the time. And so you have to fending off the wolves and fending off all kind of animals and running after these dirty, uh, ignorant animals and bringing them back into safety. And so actually, when you think about it, God was training Moses out there in the desert. 
for 40 years. He actually got some pretty awesome training out there. <laughs> See, because out there in the desert, he was doing exactly the same thing he would be doing with the Israelites. The exact same thing. <laughs> God's like, okay, Moses, you've tended these stubborn sheep for 40 years. Now you're ready. <laughs> now you're ready to do the exact same thing with my people. The same thing. It's going to be dirty. It's going to be thankless. They're not going to listen to you. They're going to doubt you. They're going to have all kinds of problems with you. They're going to get themselves in a lot of trouble, in a lot of danger. But hey, you're used to that, Moses. <laughs> you're used to that. So, Moses, lead them. Lead them. Care for them. Shepherd them. They're stubborn. So love them. Love them. That's what God is doing with Moses throughout this book. And you know what? In the end, Israel ended up with a good shepherd in Moses. He loved them. He was patient with them. He was so kind with them. He was a great leader. And he risked his life for them. Yeah. Israel ended up with a good shepherd. But you and me, we ended up with a better one, an even better one. Because <laughs> you see, Moses risked his life for his sheep. But our shepherd, he gave his life for his. In John chapter 11, this is what Jesus says. He says this, quote, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I, I lay down my life for my sheep. End quote. End quote. That is what our shepherd tells us. That's what he has done for us. And remember what the Pharaoh said? You know, that Pharaoh, he is no different than Satan. Pharaoh really is the Satan figure of this story. And you know what Satan continually tells us? He says, get back to your burdens. Get back. We hear the message of freedom, and Satan says, no. Get back to your burdens. But what does our good shepherd tell us? He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. <laughs> I'll give you rest. And you might ask, but, but how? Like, how does he do that? How can he give me rest in the middle of my turmoil, 
in the middle of my trials, in the middle of my pain, in the middle of my sin. How can he do that? How does he do that? Here's how. If you're not a Christian here today, this is what you must know. And if you are a Christian here today, this is what you must remember about Jesus, our shepherd. You must know and remember this. We, like sheep, like Israel, had gone astray. We had gone astray. We ignored our shepherd, and we got ourselves into a world of danger. We were stubborn, and we were rebellious. And so we wandered and wandered in the darkness. And while we were out there, wandering and lost in the darkness, the wolf found us. The wolf came for us. The great wolf of sin, death, and judgment. And he sought to devour us. But we have a good shepherd, a really, really good shepherd. And our shepherd came to rescue us. And our shepherd is not weak. He is strong. And he went out to face the great wolf. And he allowed himself to be devoured by the wolf in our place. So that we, his poor little sheep, could come home. So that we could rest in his father's house. And so, the reason Jesus can give us rest right now, right where we sit, is because he has already taken our burdens of sin, judgment, and death onto himself. He has taken the yoke off of our necks and placed it on his own neck. Jesus endured chaos and torment so that we could have peace and rest. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we never, ever will be. Jesus took the danger for us so that we can be safe forever. And this, my friends, is what church is all about. That's what church is all about. We are all stubborn and forgetful. We are. I'm as guilty as anyone. We quickly forget who our shepherd is and what he has done for us. We forget. We forget what he has promised. And so, what does he do? Our good shepherd, being a good shepherd... He gathers his flock every Sunday in churches all around the world. He gathers us together in order to calm our anxious hearts down (laughs) and tell us that he cares for us, that he is watching over us, that he loves us. And he reassures us every week that we are forever forgiven and free. In his blood. (laughs) And he reminds us that in reality, though our pain seems very tangible and real, he brings us here to remind us 
that in reality his love for us is far more real than our pain. You see, God promised Moses that he would show him who he is. And he makes the same promise to you and the same promise to me. And at the cross, (laughs) at the cross, he showed us. He showed us who he really is. He is our deliverer, our good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. The hymn writer put it like this. What punishment so strange is suffered yonder? The shepherd dies for sheep that loved, loved to wander. 